welcome everyone to our podcast, Land and People. And we are interviewing practitioners and people with ancestral ties to the land on our podcast. I'm Melissa Camara. I am an artist and a conservationist, born and raised here in Hawaii. And I'm Clay Traurnicht, and I uh, am a faculty member at University of Hawaii Manoa, I, specialist, eco, extension specialist in ecosystems and fire. So trying to, uh, you know, learn from these folks and kind of pass the word along as far as what stuff that they've learned and what we can learn from them going forward. And so far, our focus is kind of trying to capture some of the knowledge from the elders uh, that folks that have been working in conservation and sort of education about the environment. Um and I think really was inspired by you, Melissa, having a couple of your mentors pass away, unfortunately, quite recently. And this realization of like, holy crap, we need to, we need to like, we need to learn. We need to like grab some of these stories, right? Before, yeah. Uh, you know. Yeah, that's it. And I just realized turning 50 this year that we needed to do that really quick. And like, um, we're not, we're not young anymore, are we? No, no. <laughs> and so we've started out by talking to our senior botanist, uh, Bob Hobdy and uh, Steve Perlman. If you haven't listened to those interviews, they're pretty incredible. They've worked all different places. And now we have Sheila Conant, who is a former professor of mine. Really the reason why I went down the road of becoming a natural resource manager in the 1990s. I took a class with her. You'll hear a little bit about that. Her background is in birds, but like so many of these folks, they like and connect with everything, the plants, the insects, the whole. Yeah, I didn't know whole, she right? was, uh, she got a degree in botany as well. It's like, uh, mm-hmm. wasn't all about the birds. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I knew Sheila, I felt like I've known Sheila for a long time, but mostly because I was friends with all of her students. When I was a grad student <laughs> and, uh, you know, in botany at the university of Hawaii, like I was friends with a number of her students who were in the zoology program at yeah. the time. So I, I knew who she was and who, you know, and would say hi, but I never really, I wasn't yeah. one of her students. I never took a class, but of course, you know, she's pretty, uh, pretty well respected mm-hmm. um, and her, herself and her students have done amazing projects related to bird conservation um, across Hawaii. And so uh, it's not an easy topic to talk about birds in Hawaii is kind it's of pretty kind of heartbreaking oh, story. Yeah, it is. It is. You're going to hear that. I mean, like so many things, birds in Hawaii are on the brink. Many of them. Um, we are in this critical point in time where we either are going to have them or we aren't quite frankly. And we get into a a little bit of that. And I like Sheila because she just tells it to you straight. She's not going to sugarcoat anything. (laughs) (laughs) She's going to tell you how she feels. She's going to tell you, you know, what's up. And, um, you know, the other thing about her, and again, I don't want to take away from the interview here, but you're going to hear about her experiences of being a woman in science back in the day, which is pretty incredible. So I can't wait for you all to listen. And yeah, and I think I, I, I was really it was pretty pretty fun to chat with her, and you know the stories kind of went all directions across her whole life, um, mm-hmm. and you know, and she was very funny about. Oh, I hope I didn't offend anybody. I don't think. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think um, so. But, you know, and, and as always, that's a good segue because the, the views and opinions, right, expressed here yes. by us yes. or by uh, our, our guests. guests don't reflect um, those of our sponsors or respective institutions, et cetera, et cetera. You know, this is 
mm-hmm. it was very candid, very, mm-hmm. very kind of off the cuff. And yep. um, I think uh, I think she appreciated that in particular. So hopefully yes. that comes across. Yes, I think so, too. Um, and so with that, here is our next interview with Sheila Conant, retired professor of University of Hawaii in biology and zoology. Clay, what is your academic background again? Uh, mostly plants, plant ecology and, and fire ecology. Okay. Um, okay. More, more specifically. But I did a, I was at UH Botany. Oh, you were? You know who I am because we met through the Botany no, ladies. No, I don't. Yes, you do. My wife's Talia. We were met at the oh, last one of those croquet. Oh, yes. Remember? I okay. Yes. Oh my goodness. Yes. Oh my goodness. Yes. yes. Right. Oh, yes. That's, well, hello. I know. <laughs> it is nice to be able to welcome um, to the to the chat here. This is how we start every conversation so far. As we were just saying, we don't know where it's going to go necessarily, but this was the first question we we kind of pitched. And then just to tell us a little bit about where you're from uh, and kind of the experiences or people that kind of connected you to uh, to where you grew up and where you ended up working and, and living for, for, for your life. Uh, well, I was born and raised in Manoa Valley and the house that I'm sitting in now, my family moved into in 1958. My mother loved plants, and she liked animals, too, but she was a keen gardener. And when we were children, uh, we kept all sorts of pets, you know, dogs and cats, but, uh, you know, ducks, rabbits, guinea pigs, geese, parakeets, and I collected snails and put them in a box. And then we looked at things like praying mantids. Anyway, it's, I don't recall her encouraging us to do that. We were just curious, and we certainly were not discouraged. My dad wasn't very enthusiastic about that sort of thing, but he never, you know, he never told us not to do it or anything like that. Um, And interestingly enough, both of my brothers became entomologists, so we're we're pretty biologically oriented. how did you start to start thinking that maybe this is something that you'd make a, a livelihood out of? Well, I've thought about that kind of question a lot. And uh, I will say that when, when I was in high school, I don't remember what uh, year, I decided, and I'd like to say I knew I wanted to be a college professor. And I loved English literature. And all four years in high school, I went to a four-year high school, I got the award for the highest grade in English literature. So I thought, okay, I'm going to major in that, and I'm going to teach it as a college professor. So then I went to my first English class at UH, and it was awful. Uh, I didn't <laughs> like the professor at all. And later on, we became good friends. Oh, that's funny. Um, and I, I struck, that was one of the only two C's, no, three C's I ever got in college. So I struggled through that class. And then I had to take something in the second year, and I took a literature class from a really nice professor. And the literature class made me realize that that I was very young, and a lot of the things that I might be reading or trying to teach, I had not had sufficient life experiences to do them justice. So I was sort of wondering what to do. And then toward the end of the first year, my mother asked me to take my younger brother, Pat, 
to what was then called Sea Life Park. And so we went out there and we, you know, looked at the coral reef thing and watched the dolphins and all that sort of thing. And I don't, I think it was when we were looking at the coral reef, I just suddenly thought, this is what I want to do. I want to be a biologist. And, uh, you know, I just never looked back from that. The college professor thing was always there. I remember as a child, we lived for a while in Virginia, that I there were birds that, that I sort of got to know. There was one bird, I'll bet it was a starling, that was very, very tame. And if I would sit in the backyard, it would come and sit on me. We collected box turtles in the summer, and then we let them go in the winter. So that that's how I got into it. And uh, I just really enjoyed biology. I, I had to take, of course, organic chemistry and physics, but uh, I got through that. And then I knew if I was going to be a college professor, I'd have to get a PhD. And I also knew that if I wanted to come back here and teach, that I had to go away to get that Mm. PhD. So I stayed here through my master's in zoology. And and then I went to Oklahoma. And I didn't really want to go to Oklahoma, but my then husband uh, said it was the only place that accepted him of all the places we applied. I later found out that he only applied to Oklahoma. <laughs> <laughs> That's um, <laughs> uh, so. I went to Oklahoma, and uh, the young man who was supposed to get the National Science Foundation fellowship was drafted. It was Vietnam War time, and I was second in line. So I had a wonderful fellowship for the four years that I was there. So I studied acoustic and visual communication in blue jays, of which I still remain very fond. Cool birds. And then my my advisor was a lovely man. Uh, I never went down to the biological station for a summer. I think that was the only thing he I disappointed him about. But I wanted to take some courses. So I thought, well, you know, I'll go take some botany courses. Mm-hmm. And so I did. I The first course I took was plant ecology. And I thought the professor was wonderful. And uh, and then I took, you know, plant kingdom. I even took plant physiology, heaven forbid. Um, but I loved plants. And I think equally as important, I learned that I really liked botanists. Yeah, they're an okay lot, you know. <laughs> they're a good bunch. They're a good bunch. <laughs> Well, in Oklahoma, right, zoologists are tough guys, you know, okay. lots of testosterone and all that. And I just, okay, whatever. <laughs> but ever since then, I really liked botanists. When I took plant taxonomy there, the instructor was a, was a great big man, and his office was always dark because he was looking at Kodachrome slides. And he was very intimidating. He was the editor of the American Journal of Botany. He put up a picture of a flower of some plant, and he said, now, isn't that lovely? You know, totally out of character for what you... And that was just another indication that botanists were good people. And to this day, <laughs> my best friends in biology are botanists, although I do like entomologists quite a bit. Yeah, there's a good aesthetics. Aesthetic appreciation, I think, has to come with the territory. <laughs> botany, for sure. I think so. <laughs> Birds probably too, though, you know. Yeah, well, yeah, I, I never lost my interest in birds, but I really got interested in botany. And um, 
And so I did a master's degree in botany and the professors in botany didn't know I was in the zoology graduate program and vice versa. <laughs> that is interesting. You're like infiltrating the... <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I finished both degrees in the same week. <laughs> and my office on campus was in the botany department. And uh, I think my advisor thought that was a little odd, but he never he never said anything about it. Oh. And then I was offered a, a postdoc straight out of graduate school. And I went to the Big Island and surveyed birds. Mm-hmm. And uh, things just took off from there, I guess. When the post, actually the postdoc was terminated for, I, okay. well, let's just say sexual harassment by the guy wow. that was advising me. Wow. So I, I quit <laughs> and I went to California for a year and I hated it because all the mm. mountains got brown in the winter. They didn't stay green. <laughs> and when I came back, I was hired back by a botanist, of course, to finish the work. I was offered a temporary position teaching introductory biology in what was then called the general science department. Mm. And then they gave me a tenure track position and, you know, it all went on. There you are. Okay. At the University of Hawaii, that... Yes, yes. Okay. Well, gosh, there's so many things I want to ask you about. I mean, we're jumping ahead a little bit because, honestly, I mean, a woman in science, I mean, you just partially answered... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> what I wanted to know, you know, well, with your postdoc. Well, with your postdoc, you know, that ending because of sexual harassment. Oh, Let's just right. Call it what it is these mm-hmm. days, which is intolerable. Um, it wasn't back then. Yeah. Every single, I mean, there were five PIs on this huge grant, and all of the other four knew why I was quitting, and mm-hmm. they didn't uh, say a word. They couldn't, they didn't say anything. I, th- what year was this, Sheila? Like 1973 or 1974, something like that. I mean, setting that aside for a moment, which is uh, beyond traumatic, I can't imagine. Can you just tell me what that was like um, being a woman in science, you know, your perspective, just all of it? I I did have that unfortunate experience Mm -hmm. and, and that led me to always want to help other women students usually mm-hmm. in science, but not always. Mm-hmm. People would come to me with sexual harassment complaints mm-hmm. and I would, you know, stir them up, get them going, offer to mm-hmm. go and talk to people. So mm-hmm. I'm sensitized to that. But, you know, the whole idea of the being a female in science is not something that I really have ever thought about a whole lot, except if somebody said, oh, no, you can't do that. Women can't do that. And then I would get mad and say, bullshit. <laughs> I shouldn't say that. But anyway. You can. You can. <laughs> but no, my, my mother just always encouraged us to work hard, you know, whether we're studying or whatever it was, and to do what we wanted to do. So mm-hmm. to me, you know, the whole business of going to school, graduate school, coming back, uh, counting birds, teaching, that was what I wanted to do. And I didn't really have a perception that mm-hmm. I that I was very aware of being a woman at this time. But I know a lot of women have, have negative experiences or they're not confident. Mm. Right. Mm-hmm. And if I have anything to say about it, if they ask me any questions or come to me, I just try to encourage them. I think that my personality, you know, causes me to like to do certain things or appreciate certain things. And part of my personality is being female. But I really don't, I didn't think to myself, 
I'm going to be a woman biologist. Right. I just wanted to be a biologist. Right. And I did not let that, I didn't let it hold me back. And I think maybe after that unfortunate episode, that tendency became even stronger. Mm-hmm. 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 So. I mean, I it strikes me in... I've talked to others, you know, when you're breaking ground, because honestly, that's what you're doing at that time, whether you realize it or not, right? For all of us coming out later, <laughs> working in these male-dominated fields, you're just like putting your head down, I imagine, and just like doing, because you just do, right? And it's, yeah. as you say, it's just, this is what I love to do. I'm going to be here, deal with it, <laughs> or whatever. Um, but then I think maybe later, you might reflect, as you are now, on what that difference might have been or if there was. I mean, I feel this way too. I think thinking about being a woman in the arts, it's like you represent whether you want to or not a female perspective. I don't necessarily think of myself as a female artist per se, but it's interesting like that awareness then and now and, you know, you're thinking back on those days. I mean, you were, I imagine, probably one of the only women (laughs) doing it then. Well, I remember when I first decided I was going to go to Nihoa, my then not so much a friend, uh, Ron Walker, when I said, well, I want to go out to Nihoa and I need to get my permits. He was a biologist for uh, Division of Forestry and Wildlife. Well, women don't go out there or words to that effect. Mm-hmm. And I just, sorry, no, you can't <laughs> tell me that. I'm going to do this and I want my permits. Uh, I was polite. I'm sure I was polite, but mm-hmm. uh, I just wouldn't accept that. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I think it's more of a handicap to be short sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> now I'm being told I can't climb ladders, right? Oh. So life is, life is just a trial all the time. Anyway. Always something. <laughs> yeah, always. Uh, no, I was going to say, how have you seen that, the space? I mean, either kind of in the research field component, or even in academia more generally, how have you seen the space change as far as those kinds of attitudes and um, just simply like, you know, opportunities um, for for women? Well, I think there's been a tremendous change. I, I mean, when I think about, uh, well, the translocation of the Nihua Millerberg to Laysan Atoll, which Sheldon Planovich, who was one of my students, carried out. I'm trying to, there were two guys on that expedition. One of them was the veterinarian, and the other one was Peter Luscombe, who is, who is a fantastic aviculturist and a sweetheart, just a really nice guy. He'd never do anything that could be considered sexist, and the vet was very focused on taking care of the birds. And then I think... Sheldon wanted me to go on the first one, and I said no. And the reason I said no was that someone was going on that trip who did not like me and who had said, oh, she's too old. She won't be able to do this. And I did struggle when I got there. I was 70, I think. I had my 70th birthday there. And I got a, you know, a a glass tiara and what, Sheldon. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, I just didn't want to, didn't want to be on a small ship with that person or small boat. The next time I went out in 2015, we were looking for a plant. And I went because I was the last person to see any living individuals of this plant. And when you see people like um, Sheldon Pletovich, you know, who works for Fish and Wildlife Service, 
she's doing all kinds of things. And, yeah. and now when people go to the Northwestern Hawaiian Islands, they look at everything. And it used right. to be that the Fish and Wildlife Service trips to the Northwestern Hawaiian Islands were, okay, let's go out there, let's count the birds. For the birds. And never mind anything else. Right. And now... When those trips happen, Sheldon lines up a botanist, an entomologist, a malacologist, Mm -hmm. and they look at everything. That's Um, great. Which is the way it always should have been. But we're, you know, we're more, we're, well, women are included in much more things and in fact now dominate a lot of those things. (sighs) I think that, well, I know now that when I said conservation biology, I remember Noreen's husband, Ken, when he was Mm -hmm. in conservation biology is in science and that's all he's doing now you know mm. it's it's much more accepted it's much more sophisticated right. uh, mm-hmm. and so it's not shunned by the mm-hmm. people who think that they're real scientists mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. and now uh, conservation practice mm-hmm. attempts to integrate people and cultures. Yeah. Yeah. And we're doing that a lot in Hawaii. We're very aware of uh, native birds. I just wish there were more native birds for people to see. Don't um, native plants are still a good way to do that because there's mm-hmm. a lot of those left. And birds, I don't know if I'd say they take second fiddle to, to anything else, but uh, we realize and we're acting upon the idea that uh, the other organisms out there are are very important too. You can't say, well, this is more important than that. But, uh, and I, I just think that's wonderful. There are a lot more women around to hire now. I was just right. going to say, yeah, the pool is just enlarged. I mean, it's just, yeah, is. It's, it's just it's very, very different. Well, it's cool. And they're obviously making new kinds of opportunities. So like the example of Pacific Rim conservation as being, yes. you know, a, a uh, not affiliated with an academic institution, right. but still able to support and kind of promote these kinds of projects and create more right. opportunities. And then even someone like with Sheldon, you know, ensuring that there's a wider group of just not, you know, expertise going out to these places. So that's not all for the birds. Um, right. Right. And I think that, uh, you know, there are uh, in human beings uh, characteristics of the different sexes, behavioral characteristics. And, of course, they don't apply to everybody and they vary quite a bit. But women tend to want to be more inclusive. And when mm-hmm. something goes wrong, they tend to be more patient and, and they want to work things out without yeah. getting into a fist fight. Uh, and all of that. Can I be offended yet? Am I allowed uh, to? <laughs> You could try. Am I allowed to take offense? <laughs> well, anyway, I wouldn't do very well in a fist fight. But Me neither. <laughs> well, you know, the other thing that I've done that uh, makes me appreciate, uh, you know, women in any field is I, when I was going to be chair of the zoology department, the previous chair handed me a flyer and he said, well, there's going to be a three hour workshop on conflict resolution, you know, and I think, I think this might be good. Why don't you go? And I went and I ended up getting a graduate certificate in conflict resolution and, uh, and conflict resolution when you go through it, I, I didn't professionally, you know, mediate, but I did a couple of mediations and I learned about how mediation works and I learned about how we should approach problems that are going to affect a lot of people. 
Just right. and, and a good example is the Birds Not Mosquitoes campaign. Right. And I remember talking to the people that were, you know, starting to think about that. And I wanted to say, well, why weren't we doing this, you know, 40 years ago? But I didn't. Um, but I could just, it was mostly men. Sorry, but. <laughs> <laughs> Feel free to, uh, yeah. I, I, <laughs> I, I, everybody I talked to, I said, I said, you know, before you make very much progress at all, you need to go to the public mm-hmm. and to the groups you think mm-hmm. will be. Uh, interested in, affected by this, against it. You need to talk to them now before mm-hmm. you do it. Mm-hmm. Because if you do that, then then those people will have been heard and they will feel yeah. as though they're included. Invested. There were still a lot of people who said, no, no, these are GMO mosquitoes, which is not the case. Um, but they did finally get somebody who was working in that program that I've known for a long time, and he's a very, uh, you know, sort of calm, quiet person who in, includes people and is is very good at working with people and bringing them in at the right time. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I mean, that kind of leads to, oh, I think it leads to a couple of questions, but I'm just wondering, make closer to what you were talking about just now, that idea that, um, you know, frankly, I think a lot of scientists and in conservation, this actually t- tends to be kind of at the forefront. It's just like, you know, I'm right. Just listen to us. You know what yes. I mean? Like I, I, we know, or I know. And, yes. you know, so that's the way it's got to be. And so I'm curious as to like, you know, how you've seen that change as far as realizing like, well, you know, just because you know a lot about a system or a species. And of course we can understand like what the steps are we need to protect that. But you, you are just like, that's just the sort of one piece. It doesn't make it happen. Well, since you're a guy, I'll just say that. Come at me. (laughs) You're saying that all the, you know, the people in science that act like that, there are a lot of people who do act like that. I mean, I know it doesn't work, right? That's why I'm just kind of seeing what you've learned over the years. And they're probably males more often than they're females. But I think that's more of a personal issue. Yeah. You know, I know the best thing to do. Yeah. and if you're dealing with the public and if you're out there having to get permits and holding public hearings, you better pay attention to what the mm-hmm. public has to say. And if they don't understand it, you need to help them understand it. Yeah. And then you need to respect their point of view. Mm-hmm. You know, I know you think this is GMO. Uh, scientists would say it's not. Let's talk about that. Actually, for the benefit of our our listeners, Sheila, let's back up and talk about the bird and the mosquito project. Okay. Most folks might be familiar with the problem of mosquitoes carrying avian disease, you know, and so the, the challenge with that, right, is that I could start this as, as the climate warms and that there's this, been this line where the mosquitoes can't pass. We're all nodding here on the, to- on the call. As the mosquitoes, as the climate warms, these mosquitoes are getting higher and higher up. And so we've, re- we've restricted our birds up to those upper elevation sites. And now those sites are, are becoming less and less available. And- because of disease. Um, Kauai, the birds on Kauai don't have a chance. If they're not already resistant, probably the Puaiohi is, but the honey creepers are not. Honey creepers get avian malaria and they drop dead. Yeah. And those birds, well, you may have read about the Akeke. They just brought what they, what they know is the last bird on a particular part of the Alakai Plateau. 
uh, and a number of other birds of the same species into captivity because they were just dropping like flies, and that yeah. bird died in captivity. Died. And that I might be that. the, the Pooli died in well, captivity. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so honeycreepers have no tolerance for malaria. They can maybe cope, maybe cope with avian pox a little bit better, and that's carried by the same mosquito. But yeah. I got a, maybe it was a Facebook post that he made, Jack Jeffrey, that marvelous photographer, who I always tell is much older than I am. <laughs> he's a delightful man, and he's a wonderful photographer. And we went through some hard times together, Jack and I. But he posted something on Facebook that said, you know, yesterday I was up at, uh, maybe it was Kua'okala, I don't know, some place where the altitude was, I think, about 5,900 feet. And he said, I was bitten by a mosquito. Right. Okay. Now, that was the daytime. And it could have been Aedes japonicus, which Mm. is out in the daytime, or Aedes aegypti. The mosquito that transmits malaria is nocturnal. Mm. So, but when when I read that, you know, I'd been thinking, oh well, we have Hakalau Forest Reserve, and maybe we can there's just move all the birds places. over there. And there's right. a lot of people thinking that way. Right. They just it's that's the way it is. They yeah. cannot develop resistance soon enough, and they they really are. I mean, the I the last Palila estimate. Well, the Palila's challenge right now is drought, not mosquitoes. But fire too. A couple of those last yeah. ones came very yeah. close to that place. I don't know how many people quite realize. Like, no. you know, the firefighters know it. They know what's there that they're there, and they're, yeah, there's not a lot we can do. Uh, and but- they ought to get those blasted sheep out of there. There was a yeah. court order. I'd have to go back and look it up, but I used to. Uh, Melissa, you might remember. I remember, about that in yeah, that class, in your class. That yep. The late Sam King issue mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. required, directed the state to build a fence and eliminate the sheep. Yeah, and now there are there. more than there ever have been before. But anyway, there are uh, there are birds that are down to extreme. Kibikiu, I think, is like 130, maybe 150. I have these numbers mm-hmm. somewhere. Because uh, I I did a little workshop for American Bird Conservancy, but I don't know where they are. If we don't do something right now, we're going to lose all those birds, yeah. and that's that's very very sad. And that brings us to this: mosquitoes, not birds. Yeah, like yes. what the potential so, there is. Hoops you have to jump through take years. Yeah, years. And. Uh, and we don't have that time. Right, we're running out of running out of time. No. Well, I think maybe we might get that project started. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I really don't know, but I sure do wish that, that we had known we could do this a long time ago. Um, and that we had started a lot sooner. So, Sheila, um, getting to, to you've worked in so many places, <laughs> Lausanne, right? I mean, we've, we're talking like man. I haven't different. been on Cure, <laughs> but I don't really want to know. Like, I, I this is a totally unfair question. I realize that um, if you had to describe, like, when you just just like right now, what is the place that you think of? That is that is just in your heart of hearts, like, like I'll tell you mine. It's got to be on a mountain, up at you know six, seven, eight thousand feet. Well, you don't. You know the answer for that. You must know the answer. To that. I, I'm not sure that I do because you. 
I have some guesses, but I want to hear about your... Yeah, because when I was a sophomore in college, I was in the library and I was reading books about Hawaiian birds. Mm-hmm. And I came to the Miller bird. And I I like little drab insectivorous birds a lot. <laughs> so I'm, I'm reading about the Miller bird and then I learned a little bit more about its status. And I decided right then and there, I wanted to go and study that bird. Mm-hmm. And it took me, I don't know, 17, 18 years to get there. But it's such a dramatic place. And at that time, so little was known. I collected everything. I found a new trapdoor spider. I was thrilled about that. Uh, they're very, I think they're charming. But anyway, <laughs> and I i collected uh, a very small number of the native land snails. And some of them hadn't been seen for decades and decades. And I think a couple of them had, didn't even have a scientific name. And one of them was recently described by uh, Noreen Yearn at the Bishop Museum and her husband, Ken Hayes, named after Wayne and Betsy Gagne. Mm. They were going to name it after Betsy, and she said, nope, it has to be both of us. But And it was, I mean, you you couldn't see all the way around. It wasn't like a flat island, but you were just out there, and there there was one other person. And that other person went off in the morning and did whatever they were doing. And I went off and did whatever I was doing. Mm-hmm. And it was just, it was wonderful. Everything was interesting. And mm-hmm. there were so many things that were new. And I just wanted to to bring back things that perhaps people hadn't noticed before. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's, a, you know, it's a very striking, moving place to be. Those cliffs on the north are, you know, the high point is about 900 feet. Mm. They are sheer cliffs. And there are archaeological sites all over the place. Uh, and some of them are obviously, uh, you know, hayow type mm-hmm. sites. Mm-hmm. But there's just so much there. Yeah. It's, uh, I mean, it's, it's hot and dry. Yeah. But it's wonderful to just go stand on top of an island. You get up to the highest peak on Nihua, then you can see 360 degrees, and there's nothing like 180 miles to, to Kauai or Niihau. And that I just like that feeling of being isolated. I, It sounds to me almost like time travel, really. Yeah. You know, when you get into the primordial areas that are still as they were, you know, which I don't know how much they're still as they were really anywhere in Hawaii, even in the, up in the bogs, you just feel like you're part of something that is like transcendent. I mean, really, there's no other word for it. You know, that's the artist side of me um, that's just there. There's like Clay was saying, there's like Pacific Island peoples. There's no separation between you and everything else. Right. And, and that strikes me what you're describing is a little bit like that, you know, where you've got the hail, you've got archeology, span you've got everything. You've got this rare bird. <laughs> but, but I will say that most people crave social contact. Mm, yeah. I, and I know Pacific mm-hmm. Islanders, I, I'm sure they have a much more spiritual uh, connection with land than we do, you know, because we're living in houses and Mm-hmm. talking on computers and stuff like that. And uh, and they want to care for the places that they live. Pre-European contact, isolated islands uh, that had people on them. People were changing habitats and eating, you know, flightless birds to survive. But I think it's hard to sort of 
think about it in the context of where where we come and you know in the sort of socioeconomic situation we find ourselves where you I think end up getting folks like yourself and I think the rest of us here interested in in uh, you know ecosystems and, and conservation and, and protecting these things because you're embedded in the society in which you're so yes. alienated yeah. from having those connections and making those connections. And so people know it has to be part of what we do as a, now as a species, right? Because we have to steward all of this. Like we, we are, have, our impact is so huge. I mean, beyond the impact of a, a, you know, first people coming to an island, it's all relative yeah. too. I mean, you know, talk about post Europeans, yeah. that impact is just, you can't, you can't even. even, it's like apples and oranges. I know. So I, <laughs> you know, I think that's another, another place to, if you want to start. You want to go down yeah, that road. I, yeah. <laughs> just talk about talk about weeds let's talk about weeds that's a good one you know uh, like the new plants versus like the i forget what the number is right it's like a oh, thousand huge. some odd you know yeah. introduced plants and god like the, the impact that our society has globally is like just astonishing right i mean and we just it's irreversible well, look at us where we are now. I know. Right? I'm not. I I could look out the window and see a few native plants there. Right. Right. Um, people are living in high technology mm -hmm. uh, societies are not connected. No, I think that's the, the greater world. threat. They really yeah. aren't. And so no. they raise their children without a connection. There's a difference between, you know, as like an individual footprint that you have, you know, as like we we have the capacity and technology to minimize that. Like we yes, can provide we for the, all the people that are out there in the world in a way that's far more, far less destructive than the way we are. Like, yeah, we can't all have like giant mansions and fly around and you know what I mean? So it, it is like this balance between population is like, eh, I don't really get by that so much only because we can see like how the impacts are more like industrial production and like, you know, yeah. it, it, there's, there's a bigger picture there that, that I don't even want want to get into it on. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's a huge challenge. Uh, it's a big social issue. There are so many things we'll never be able to reverse, but you know, right. if we stop having children, then who's going to keep doing this, right? Well, and who's going to be there to love this stuff? That's what I always say. Like, who, you know, if we, you know, you like laugh at this. I, I was on a, I don't some Zoom workshop and it's like, it was like, what's the biggest threat to species i don't know what it was birds or plants i can't remember but you know and then people are in the like human beings and you're like well yeah i mean okay but come on like <laughs> if there was no people like we we would not really be here to yeah. have this appreciation there's, and to like don't you know, worry there's not gonna be no people <laughs> yeah no i know it's i mean we have to learn to cope with it the way we can best right. and my I way agree. of coping I with agree. that is to be a teacher yeah, right. yeah. Tell people about this. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's great. And I can do that very well. I yeah. Uh, yeah. I gave a talk to a bunch of retired UH faculty. They asked me to talk about extinct birds of Hawaii, and it took me weeks to get that Ugh. presentation oh, together. Gosh. But I learned a lot, and I was really interested in it. I mean, Sheila, I have to ask you because I, this I asked this of all of our guests, you know, working with you know on the front line, so to speak which is like, how do you cope with the grief, right? I mean, I was a natural resource manager myself for years. Yes, I remember. 
we are in triage mode. There's no there's no time to weep about whatever. You just have to send crews out. You just got to get them safely home. We have to put, put up fences. We keep just them motivated. Keep right? them motivated. Like the work is a, like yeah. suit. You know, it's just like they're just. Well, you have to admit to yourself that you're human. And that you can't be depressed all the time. Well, that that came later. I mean, that was like a long time of like working. And then I became an artist. And then the floodgates. Right. (laughs) Right. When you're not in that work mode. And then it was like all of the sadness, right? Losing all these birds that I painted, whatever, you know? I mean, that's my story. What, what, What about you? Well, if you think about the art that you're doing, um, in a way, that's that's outreach to people, mm-hmm. and outreach doesn't work if it's hostile. <laughs> you have to be exactly. you have to really believe in what you're doing, and you have True. to be very polite to who you're talking to. And you've made that um, easier for yourself, so it's easier to live with you know the disappointment and you are affecting people by painting these beautiful pictures yeah i mean i i don't even question the the work that i'm doing because i do feel so motivated by it it's just we all process these feelings in different ways and we shut ourselves off i think in a lot of ways because we just have to and then like you're working with birds i mean good lord (laughs) so here we are (laughs) and so we're just you know we're just anyway we're shining a light on the work that you've done and work, you know, that you, that you continue to do to highlight how important. Because you say you're hopeless. It's hopeless. You're not, you're not hope. Like you don't, you you don't lack hope. You know what I mean? No, I don't lack hope because I've got all of these wonderful students like (laughs) Melissa. And you know what? Did You were not in the class with Eldridge Naboa. Do you know Eldridge? I do. Yes. Yes. Well, I sent him last week a t-shirt that I got on one of my many trips to Midway. <laughs> Good thing it was a size large, right? I don't, I don't like tight clothes. And uh, he got it yesterday. Okay. And the text I got from him was so heartwarming. Uh huh. So when you can, that if that's what you can do, then yeah. you do it. You tell other people about it. And when I look at all these people that uh, that I have known as students and see the good things they're doing. I don't feel so hopeless. And it's no fun to feel hopeless anyway. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> and I myself am contributing. I drive a car. You know, I'm sitting oh, in a house. Yeah. I have dogs. I know. I know. Uh, and, and uh, you know, our, our lot up here is big, but it's not a native forest. Mm-hmm. Right. You just have to be honest with yourself. Yeah. Uh, there are people who, who really have a hard time accepting those things. And I've known some scientists like that. Hmm. And they are no fun to be around. They're not going to convince anybody what the right thing is. That's some insight there, though, too. I mean, my wife sometimes just is like, because I, I think I have tendencies. I, it's funny because Melissa thinks I'm an optimist. I, I'm always um, like, plays the glass half full guy. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. But I, you know, that just to, to what, from what you were saying before, Sheila, like to learn that you you know, what you say, people are listening in your position, right? As a teacher that like people are listening and taking these things. Mm-hmm. And so you, you do yeah. want to be intentional there. Hey. Oh yeah. Well, you know, when I gave that talk about it was zoom, of course, uh, extinct birds. And, it, and I could see all these people, many of whom I know retired faculty. And I remember thinking to myself, well, shucks, I wish there were some young people out there that I could, <laughs> 
tell this story to. Uh, and there will be. Somebody will ask me to do that talk, and I'll have a broader audience. But the American Bird Conservancy, which I really do support, uh, they don't just do Hawaii, but they are supporting a lot of important They partially supported Nihoa Millerbird translocations. They support predator-proof fencing, all kinds of things. And they they asked me to write an essay for their quarterly magazine. What does it feel like to have seen a bird that is a living member of a species that's now extinct? And I have seen seven of those. And pretty soon that number is going to go up. And it was a very difficult essay to write, but I wrote it. And, uh, well, I was honest about it. And then they asked me to do a webinar, and they, I only had about 10 minutes. But, you know, I talked about w- what the plights were of five species. And then as I was finishing the talk up, I went, wait a minute, there's five more. Doing that for ABC, writing that essay, doing that webinar reaches a lot mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the day yeah. after the webinar, I got uh, an email from Jerry Carr, who lives on the mainland now. Yeah. Did mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. I took plant systematics with Jerry Carr, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he used to be the chair of botany. And he said, oh, Kayla, we really enjoyed your talk, and we feed the birds. Oh. And blah, blah, blah. <laughs> so, you know, that's that's the best I can do. Yeah. And I do, I do like to get out and just enjoy the birds yeah. for their own sake. You know, it's wonderful to see them. But even at my house in Volcano, uh, the numbers of native birds have are much decreased from mm. when I started building my house 10 mm-hmm. years ago. But I'm not going to go around mumbling, mumbling and grumping about that. Uh, yeah. But anybody gives me just the least, you know, squeeze room to get in there and say something, I do. And I try not to lecture people. You should be doing that. that. They can figure that out for themselves. But to just tell them. and uh, Well, and that's what I remember so much about your class, Sheila. This is going back. Yeah. And, um, you know, you would tell these stories. And I mean, as someone who grew up in Hawaii, grew up in Kaava, my dad's parents were in Waianae, very altered places, you know, in terms of what's still around from the Hawaiian days. I didn't know any of it. You know, I mean, I went to very expensive private school. (laughs) We can guess. I went to Mary Knoll. (laughs) Okay. And I didn't learn anything about that. I didn't learn anything about the birds. I didn't learn anything about the plants. Nor did I. I, But I'm a lot older. But in those days, we just didn't learn any of that. And I just, you opened my eyes to what was even there. And then that, that, that class mm. solidified my career. It really did. And then I feel like well, I took that, another island. No, it did. It did. I took your endangered species and then I took island ecosystems. And then the, the icing for me was going into Kalalau Valley with Marigold, the taking plant physiology and going out with Kenny Wood. And he was like, oh, we were doing a veg monitoring thing first time ever and he was like patiently spelling like oh okay how do you spell shidea apocrimnos s-c-h-i-e-d-e-e-a a-p-k-r-o it was just like that for like two hours do you know what i mean (laughs) like 
It really was inspiring. I mean, yeah. So I do yeah. think that approach, as you said, you know, the storytelling. It's what I do, right? And I, I, do, I do pretty good dog training, but, but I'm, getting, <laughs> I'm kind of just having fun now. Who's easier, dogs or people? Yeah. <laughs> I know that you're going to answer that, actually. So. <laughs> no, I'm not going to say that anyway. Um, <clears throat> yeah, teaching is just so important. Or telling people, you know, if, I, if I'm sitting on an airplane and somebody asks me a question and they want to talk about it, that's fun. And if you, even if you're only talking to one person. Mm-hmm. It's something. Mm-hmm. All right. So what do you say on an airplane ride? You yeah. Know, like, you know, maybe you're waiting to like, you don't want to start the conversation. So you're kind of landing in case you get stuck. Like what's your kind of three minute, like, <laughs> oh. I respond to a question they have. <laughs> you know, if, if it t- turns out that it uh, the subject goes to birds, let's say, or plants or snails, then I try to just tell them a story about what's going on with that flora or fauna if they seem interested i don't Mm want to you know force it on them uh i'm an opportunist i guess (laughs) what i should be saying is i like being by myself yeah that doesn't mean you don't like people it just means you like being by yourself for someone you know who likes a solitary life you spend a lot of time in the classroom though sheila you did yeah i know I know that. But, and that can be fun too. It's not yeah. that I, I, it's not fun. It's just mm-hmm. that most of the time being alone is a little bit better. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm starting to relax and feeling that, okay, I can read books now, uh, history books and biography. Oh. I do have the fantasy question. Actually, it's not really fantasy. It's just more like the unfair binary of like, what is your single most burning question as a scientist, which is totally like unfair. It's just more like, you know, for our science friends who've spent so much time observing, 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 and so much time like setting up scientific designs, asking students to consider questions. Is there like one area or one, it could be super specific, you know, there's something that you're like, God, I really wish I knew that, or I wish someone would go study this. Yes. Yes. I, how living things communicate. Yeah. You know, I started studying yeah. how blue jay communication. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, now we know that uh, plants communicate with one yeah. another you know, in forests. Incredible, incredibly fascinating. Uh, yeah, yeah. And, um, and I just, I just, well, I loaned David the book, but there's a book called The Genius of Birds. And my God, the things that birds can do. Uh, and I guess a lot of them are programmed. But, you know, how do they know that? How do they communicate with one another? And I'm especially interested in how uh, people communicate with animals. I think some Mm. people uh, can, and some animals can read the behavior of Mm -hmm. whoever they're communicating this better than others. And I don't know why it is that people have such a hard time understanding the behavior of of animals that are pretty closely related to us Hmm. and i'll just say dogs you know Mm -hmm. if if you if you're interacting with a dog their facial expressions are i won't say identical to ours because they have longer noses most of them Um, (laughs) and their body language 
it's so much like ours and you can feel that you're learning a lot more about how they feel what they're going through. I have one dog that that is scared of things. Why is it that so many people, the vast majority of people are are not interested in that or don't realize that a lot of other vertebrates can do the same things we can. Mm -hmm. We're finding that out about the octopus, you know, Mm -hmm. as a big generalization. Um, um, They they recognize faces and... uh, and if an octopus can recognize a face, I'll bet it can recognize the emotion displayed on them. Mm-hmm. It it's fascinating. It's not something that I think I want to study, but I guess the question I'm most uh, puzzled about is why so few people hmm. are interested in that or why so few people don't realize how well they can read the behavior of other relatively closely related species, you know, vertebrates. Uh, I think it goes back to what we were talking earlier, where you're just this kind of, you know, as a kid, it's so innate. You do your, as you're, talking this telling us a story i'm just thinking about my daughters and they're just like in love with every animal every creature they like good for her oh man yeah they're they're all about it the rabbits we have and and any dog any any animal but i think that you know you sort of you grow up right we all turn into lame grown-ups at one point but it is right you get disconnected from from uh, other living creatures right like you you yeah and uh, as you're growing up in today's world you don't do the same kinds of things that people did two centuries ago, or even that I did as a child. I remember yeah. very distinctly, not only that bird that would come and sit on me mm-hmm. uh, when I was sitting on the backyard sidewalk, but I remember we would walk over to the railroad tracks and there were, and there were forests on both sides. And, uh, and I was in the forest one day and I found a robin's nest and it was right at eye level, which of mm-hmm. course must have been six inches right no. uh, and the, you know they lay these brilliant blue eggs now how many kids today get mm-hmm. to have an experience yeah. like that you know yeah. when I sit on my deck in the front and uh, a month or two ago I was watching the red whiskered bulbuls and I realized pretty quickly that they were going back and forth to the same place in the hedge so I thought oh there's a nest down there and there was and you know, I told David about it. He was just fascinated. And I took him down uh, when the chicks were, uh, still didn't have very many feathers, but if the nest shook, they would all, you know, with their mouths open like this. <laughs> and he was, he was very much affected by that. Yeah. Uh, but kids don't get to do that these days. You know, they're looking at screens. And yeah. they're having to learn different kinds of things. And there's yeah. so many things that grab attention to their senses naturally yeah. mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and uh so i think i think one way that we could improve that would be to get kids outside more often yeah oh amen <laughs> that is the recurring theme in this podcast i think that's what i'm taking away <laughs> clay already knows it but i'm like oh yeah right we have to we have to plan something outside this afternoon. No, I, no. <laughs> well, I never thought I would do a good job raising children. Never. Well, you've I raised just, a few of us children, so. Well, <laughs> well. you've learned a few things, but you were better behaved than a lot of kids are. 
I think it's get. I think it's getting better. I think there are more opportunities within mm-hmm. schools and high school. I mean, there was nothing. I grew up in suburbs of Long Island, and there was nothing like that. I just was fortunate to have family that liked to do stuff outside. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they weren't yeah, well, like biologists or anything. But right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah. that was really fortunate. It's kind of cool to think that you know you're talking about your parents and that. Well, my mother, my mother was always outside. I can point to the rocks in the yard and, oh, you know, my mom made that little pathway and David will not change anything like that. that. I wouldn't either. Oh, mom, (laughs) he's very respectful of that. And I can remember if the the drapes weren't pulled on these windows, there's Mm -hmm. a, there's a nice yard out here with a, I'm actually growing some beans now, um, you know, a lawn, a jacaranda tree, and my yeah. vanilla mm-hmm. trellises up above it. It's, it's a good place to throw whatever for the dogs. And I remember when it was solid running bamboo. Mm-hmm. And every single weekend, mm-hmm. everybody had to get out there. You know, with it, no no herbicides then, with pick and shovel. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and I hated that. I hated gardening. <laughs> but when I finally got to do gardening where nobody was telling me what to do. It's pretty fun. I, I thought it was fun. It's- Clay, anything else you wanted to ask Sheila or Sheila, anything else you wanted to say? We are beginning to understand how fragile the earth is. Every day there's something mm-hmm. about global warming. You know, I yeah. subscribe to Washington Post and mm-hmm. The Guardian and a few other things. There's always something about global warming. It's usually uh, not very uplifting, but it's there. Mm-hmm. It's there. People are accepting that we're doing it. Not everybody, of course. Um, it is. It's very late in the game, but... People are learning to work with each other and communicate mm-hmm. with each other mm-hmm. and understand the other people, the cultures, the, you know, what makes them think the way they do. And they're learning to interact with nature yeah. more. Um, and I think teaching conservation can do that. And mm-hmm. scientists, I think, have much greater, conservation scientists have much greater appreciation of the importance of culture. Thank God there are still a lot of Native people mm-hmm. in the world. You know, they're demanding that we listen. Well, this was fun. Well, this yeah, is this fun. was super Thank fun. You Thank so you much, so much, Sheila. And for taking the time. Well, I hope there is something useful in this. There is so much. This is, this is great. 